Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on October 10th at 15.40 GMT. As always, if you want to find out any information about uh, our podcast series, be sure to follow us on a at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Also, be sure to visit our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C, uh, for all the most up-to-date information about upcoming guests, the research we do here at the centre, and so much more. Okay, I'm delighted to welcome Amar Nash Amara Singham, who's a research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He's also a fellow at the George Washington University Programme on Extremism, and he co-directs a study of Western farm fighters based at the University of Waterloo. He's the author of Pain, Pride and Politics, Sri Lankan Tamil Activism in Canada, which was published in 2015 and which we'll discuss later on in this podcast. His research interests are in radicalization, terrorism, diaspora politics, post-war reconstruction and the sociology of religion. He's the editor of Sri Lanka, The Struggle for Peace in the Aftermath of War, The Stuart Colbert Effect, Essays on the Real Impacts of Fake News, and Religion and the New Atheism, a Critical Appraisal. He is also the author of several peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and has presented papers at over 100 national and international conferences, and has written for the New York Times, Politico, The Atlantic, Vice News, Foreign Affair, and War on the Rocks. He is an avid tweeter, and I would encourage you all to follow him on Twitter, and you can find him at, at Amar Amarasingham. Amar, thanks so much for, for being here on today's pod. A pleasure, yeah. Thanks for having me. So, how did you get involved in this uh, this area of research? Um, I mean, I, I kind of come at it, I guess, from the outside in a way. I mean, um, I mean, this is, is going to sound like a corny story, but I mean, 9-11 um, was the, my first day of undergrad. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, so I remember, you know, walking down uh, the quad at the University of Toronto and someone had pulled uh, a, a one of these old televisions up and, you know, there's all these people who huddled around it and um, I kind of just was like, you know, who are these losers and why are they here? <laughs> and I went home and, uh, you know, went home and realized what had happened. But um, that kind of, in a weird way, uh, got me focused on the issue of political violence and religious violence and so on. And so um, looking at... Uh, why I guess certain movements and certain individuals um, adopt violence as a tactic or, or even see it as an obligation and so on. And so um, I've come at it from a few different perspectives, whether it's um, issues of civil war, uh, diaspora activism, uh, and now more recently, I guess, the uh, the foreign fighter phenomenon and, and the Islamic State and stuff like that. So um, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, trained, I guess, from the ground up in terrorism studies. I come at it through sociology mostly and social movement studies um, and, and a few different other things. So. so it was a sociology degree that you were starting that day, was it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for, so I'm trained in kind of the sociology of religion, religious studies. Um, and so I come at it, uh, I come to terrorism studies through a, through a different lens, I guess, um, looking at the older literature on social movements and how that might apply and um, looking at uh, kind of transnational activism and that whole literature and how that might apply and, and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so with that in mind, then, what were, the, what were the pieces, what were the bits of research that you went to after this event taking place, after 9-11, uh, 
starting off your undergraduate degree, what were the, the pieces that you looked to that helped explain what was going on? Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the earlier ones I read were, of course, the classic, like, um, Terror in the Mind of God, Mark Jurgensmeyer, uh, Jessica Stern's material, um, and, and uh, more on the history of Islam, uh, look, looking at kind of the, the rise of fundamentalism. You know, we, we all kind of uh, look at Karen Armstrong's earlier work as well um, when we're in undergrad and so on. Um, and just to kind of understand, you know, what, what is this current of fundamentalism that runs through most religious uh, uh, worldviews, and and how does that sometimes tip over into uh, tip over into violence? Whether it's violence um, articulated as justification or obligation, how does that actually um, work? And so, in undergrad, I mean, it was it was I was kind of combing through most of those kinds of works, uh, looking at the Crusades and looking at um, uh, you know Said Qutb and all these older uh, older writings and things like that. So I think that that's kind of where I began, uh, but it never really satisfied me enough in a weird way because I, I think I was always kind of, um, I mean, undergrad is frustrating in that sense because you, you kind of want to get out there and do your own research and, and talk to people, and but you never really know how to do that and you're not really trained to do that yet. <laughs> and, yeah. And of course, you don't have the funding to do any of that either. So um, it, 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 you kind of just sit around reading other people's works and and not entirely satisfied with it. But um, so it wasn't until grad school that I really um, enjoyed the process, I guess, of studying studying the stuff because you get to do it yourself. Um. So what was it outside of uh, the your inability to go out and interview these people that was frustrating you about what was written there? Was it? that you couldn't verify for yourself or was there something else about what they were saying? Um, I think, I mean, I think we have a little bit of that going on right now as well with ISIS and so on where um, we, we never really know how to deal as academics with the, with the true believer, I think, right? And, um, and the, the role of religion um, as a kind of mobilizer or the role of ideas as a mobilizer, we're not... Um, in a weird way, we're not trained to take that seriously, I think. And and uh, I'm not sure where that comes from or why, but I think it's this kind of broader trend towards modernity and secularism uh, and, and the fact that the academia is kind of hardcore secular in its outlook on things um, sometimes pushes us towards t like not understanding why people themselves do things, right? And, and I, I mean, I know for just living with my family and growing up in Sri Lanka and uh, that people do things for non-rational reasons or, or what they think are kind of bounded rational reasons, right? And, um, and and you have to kind of take those ideas seriously if you want to really understand why why they choose to do things or what motivates their behavior. And I think that was what was frustrating a bit with the earlier uh, things I was reading is because there's always this kind of, um, I don't know, subtle, maybe isn't the right word, but uh, a kind of weird dismissal of... Um, what people were saying as their true motivators and, and, and looking for other reasons for why they're doing things. And this, I mean, this is not just religion. I mean, this is um, nationalist reasons as well. So when, when, when the Tamil Tigers came out and, or, or uh, when kind of earlier Tamil nationalism began and we talked about, you know, people talked about land and language rights, um, uh, you know, even that was like, well, you know, that these are just, these are just the grievances you're latching on to make other broader, or, you know, you're really motivated by everything else. Um, and so I, I, I've always been kind of frustrated with um, not taking ideas seriously, uh, particularly within social movements. And when, so when social movements and social actors or activists um, make arguments based on 
uh, ideals and ideas. I don't know if academia <laughs> is really equipped to kind of make sense of that in, in, in a clear way. So. And do you, do you think that's still the case in terrorism studies uh, across the, the main terrorism studies journals and the conferences that you go to? A little bit. I mean, I think it's starting to change a little bit, but I think, um, you know, particularly with the Islamic State, we, we, we're kind of obsessed with this argument of um, is ISIS Islamic or not, right? And um, and not really knowing how to handle that debate without immediately polarizing it into individuals who want to protect Islam from broader Islamophobia, and then on the other end, individuals who want to see ISIS as somehow representative of Islam as a whole. Um, but this kind of vast middle uh, view that exists of actually seeing uh, these movements as, uh, you know, breakaway movements or breakaway schools of thought within uh, within kind of what, what we mean when we talk about Islam, uh, which is kind of, of course, what na what it naturally is, uh, it, it, it becomes very difficult, I think. Um, so we, we end up talking about um, economics or we end up talking about, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy grievances as if they're somehow naturally removed from religion or removed from ideas, um, which I think is the broader problem, right? It's, it's that because we separate religion and politics in our own minds as academics um, and, and Western society, we think that everyone kind of thinks that way. And so if we can just figure out whether it's religion or just figure out whether it's politics, we can make sense of these movements. When obviously for all these movements, these things are one and the same and intertwined, right? And so when, when you talk to, for example, um, some of these uh, foreign fighters that, that have went off to Syria and they say, our goal uh, is to create an Islamic state, um, it, that, that is the fundamental fusion of both religion and politics, right? It's the separation of those two that they're fighting against and that they see as a problem. It, that, that, it, it's that Western society has separated these two things that they see as a foundational issue for them uh, as youth. And so uh, to, to, to kind of figure out a way to separate those two doesn't make sense if, if the goal is to actually understand these movements on their own terms, right? And so that, that I think is the issue. And so do you think there's, there's an issue then for us that because academia looking at these issues looking at these groups and looking at these motivations are so western dominated as well that we have our perspective and it's it's being applied to this and it doesn't always fit and we're we're trying to we're we're trying to fit it in our own our own perspective and therefore and without the perspective coming from elsewhere that we're we're blinkered in a way or I think so. I think, I, I mean, that's just one aspect of it. So there's a kind of secular bias of academia. Um, and, you know, people like Sabah Mahmoud uh, have talked about the feminist bias in, in academia as well, where naturally all women on the, on the planet uh, want to be feminists naturally. Uh, and, and, and that has a, a kind of Western bent to it. So they want to be feminist in the Western sense, right? So when, when uh, 18 year old girls leave Toronto or, or England to go off to the Islamic State um, and, and they naturally choose a kind of domesticated conservative lifestyle under ISIS, um, we don't really know what to do with that, right? They're like, of course, all women should naturally want a feminine, a westernized feminist notion of things. Um, and and that, that kind of impacts academia in, in, in a weird way too, right? And so um, I, I mean, Sabah Mahmoud has written quite a bit on this, where she she talks about the feminist bias, and I think that that uh, I mean, some of that literature hasn't really been talked about within terrorism studies, but I think it impacts how we talk about um, these kinds of things, particularly I mean, with ISIS and and the um, young girls that it often um, has recruited from Western countries, where 
you know, the, the very idea that they would abandon all of our freedoms, uh, so to speak, and, and um, uh, you know, choose a kind of conservative lifestyle, um, choose even very kind of restrictive lifestyles and, and, and violence and domestic domestication doesn't make any sense to us, right? And we don't, we don't know how to interpret some of that stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, we do have blinkers on uh, in a way uh, to, to a lot of these to these things and um, whether it's the feminist bias or the Western secular bias, I think that that kind of impacts our scholarship in, um, in kind of quite noticeable ways, actually. So um, um, we, we do need to be careful about that. Yeah. And what kind of reaction have you got when you present uh, this viewpoint? Um, have you had any pushback from people? Um, not so much, no, not in terrorism studies. I think, I think they're, they're, what I like about terrorism studies, even though I, I come at it quite differently, is um, it is op because it's not a field unto itself in yeah. some way. Um, it does. I mean, you do find yourself in the room with anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists, um, and even more recently with law enforcement officials and policy uh, po policymakers and um, you know think tank people and uh, private contractors and things like that. So it, it is a kind of eclectic mix of people who you find yourself in the room with sometimes accidentally and. Um, and I think there there is a there is a sense that we're not getting at something, right? And I think I think people um, people feel that, uh, and 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 so they're actually but in, uh, interestingly open to new ideas and, and and broader ways of thinking. And I think that um, so I, I haven't really gotten any pushback on the, in that level. I think um, people are hungry for information, hungry for data, and and kind of in, um, intrigued by new ideas, and particularly. Um, bringing in other literatures, right? So I think part of the weakness of terrorism studies, I, I don't know if it's a weakness or not, but I think part of what's been lacking is a kind of um, cross-fertilization, I guess, of, of, of uh, different fields uh, in, into the study of terrorism. So, you, you know, you recently had um, some books come out on um, bringing in social movement literature to the study of terrorism. Um, you had uh, that kind of stuff. But... but uh, I think I think a lot of that still needs to happen a bit more, right? And so this entire field of, for example, the sociology of the internet has largely been untapped when it comes to the study of ISIS online, for example, or um, the large literature on multiculturalism and immigration and integration has largely been untapped when it comes to second-generation Muslim youth and and why they might be becoming uh, disillusioned uh, with Western society and stuff like that. So I think there's there's because it's not a field unto itself, because there's so many different people involved, they they also um, there's also vast amounts of literature that are left out um, and and aren't tapped into properly, and so that that um, that I think is a is a is, is a foundational weakness I think in in some of what we see, um, because there are people who are kind of brought up and trained in terrorism studies and they don't know that sometimes this literature even exists, right? And and I find it more in policy circles where the entire, you know, people people don't even know that uh, a field of the study exists on the sociology of the internet, going back into the 90s, <laughs> right? Um, and and so that that I think it can be um, put put up some blind uh, blind spots for us. Yeah, and it it's when I asked uh, I asked all of our all of our guests to, to send me on the the links to some pieces that have influenced your work. And just mm. listening to you talk, I can completely understand why you chose the three pieces that you did. The first one being uh, Berger and uh, Luckman's 67 piece, The Social Construction of Reality. 
Um, mm -hmm. What was it that you drew from this and that you still draw from this to, to apply to your understanding, uh, not just in terror, of terrorist groups, but as a whole, as an academic? Yeah. Um, so I read this book in my master's, I think, and um, it utterly blew my mind, right? I think, because <laughs> at, at, at base, it's a, it's a fairly simple idea that reality is socially constructed, that we create our own worlds, that we create our own worldviews. But what it, what it signaled, um, which I think is still missing in, in um, parts of terrorism studies, is that, is that people create their worlds and those worlds become their reality, right? That sounds like a simple statement. But it's actually quite a profound one, where your worldview, your the, the the world that you find yourself in, that you find that that you get immense uh, meaning and purpose and sense of belonging in, that is your anchor for your identity and all of that, is a fundamental construct, right? And 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 it's something that uh, changes from time to time, changes from neighborhood to neighborhood, and 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 so on. Um, but it has massive impacts on your actions, how you choose to go about your day. Um, and whether you live or die, right? You will fight and die for uh, things that for us seem like completely absurd uh, creations. And, and I mean, you, you can even apply this to, you know, the, the United States and their gun laws, right? Yeah. Canadians, I don't think Canadians, Brits, Australians really get it. <laughs> really get this bizarre obsession with guns and the Second Amendment and uh, people are willing to kind of take up arms and storm the White House if their Second Amendment is um, uh, threatened in any way. So this this idea that the, your worldview is actually quite important um, and anchors who you are uh, is something we now take for granted, I think, in academia. But when this book came out in '67, it was kind of uh, like an earthquake, right? People didn't people didn't know um, people didn't think in these terms of of oh, your worldview is socially constructed. Everyone just thought, oh, of course. What you believe now is what you believed yesterday, and what you, your family believed the year before, and your your entire generation believed. And so this idea that you construct uh, your world, and that world uh, constructs you, um, was was kind of a major insight back in the '60s. And I think um, it, it, it's helpful sometimes to keep uh, keep that in mind because I think we. Uh, we f we forget how important these worldviews can be and these kind of uh, constructions can be for how we go about our day, and it's that much more important I think because we live in a hyper plural environment now where we um, are not really trained to understand other people's worldviews and how they um, how they're impacted by them uh, in any real sense. I think we we kind of dismiss people's worldview as oh you know if you. And this has, you know, huge implications for how we talk about immigration and, and multiculturalism and uh, all these kinds of things. So the, the, the major debate in Europe around uh, immigration and multiculturalism, um, I think, is impacted by this, right? Is that you, you're, you're, the, the kind of um, lack of understanding of some Europeans uh, of a kind of self-reflection to say, this isn't a blank slate, right? That that European identity is actually a foundational project that continues every day, and that we're creating this concept of Europe on a daily basis, um, is what leads to a lot of these fights and arguments over immigration and and whether Syrian refugees are impacting a European identity and and a British identity and that kind of thing, right? And um, because there's an assumption I think in the West and uh, that somehow because we've removed religious identity and all these religious histories from our from our self-conception that we're now a blank slate where we can just kind of create new identities well in fact there's a kind of residue and a tradition and culture that that um, is part of that identity and and if we don't recognize it um, it leads to a lot of isolation and 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 
um, pushing people further away, right? And and so um, there there is a real wrestling with that identity now. Do we want to be a refugee accepting country, even though we've signed all these treaties for the last 50 years? Do we want to be um, a multicultural society, even though we that's the kind of thing we've preached for the last 50 years, right? And um, so it's important to understand, I think, how these traditions and, and uh, worldviews last over time as a state, also not just as on the individual level. Yeah, and I suppose when we look at what the core of this podcast series is about, about uh, the study of terrorism and why people would be engaged in terrorist activity, it's mm-hmm. if we're trying to understand why someone goes and joins a group like ISIS, it's we have to understand their interpretation we have to understand their construction of their reality and it's gaining access to that to that construction rather than our own construction that's what we're aiming to do and yeah. uh, it's it's through that that we can really uh, gain this understanding of why someone would get involved and ultimately why someone may leave as well so it's it's getting access to 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 their construction rather than our own construction yeah, and I think I mean as academics, I think we're kind of uniquely positioned to do that because that's that's kind of what, uh, particularly in in you know field research and things like that, we're trained to do is to get into a community um, and understand the contours of that community and 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 the history of that community at a deeper level, um, spend time with the people in these communities and get to know them. Where, um, uh, but I, I mean, it doesn't mean that we have to somehow sympathize or no. this is where I think a lot of the public um, and, and where I have received some pushback, actually, when I, you know, when I write, uh, do interviews with these guys, <laughs> um, people have been like, oh, this is kind of sympathetic to ISIS. And I'm like, you know, there's, there's always this idea of if you understand people who do deplorable things, sometimes that uh, in itself they're not worthy of understanding, right? And and this is where um, I think I think we're mistaken. Is that, uh, that you know whether whether it's a guy who beats his wife or whether it's a guy who uh, burns pilots in cages, I think we need to understand why they're doing what they're doing and um, understanding the worldview that's kind of driving that. Um, and just because you seek to understand it doesn't mean somehow you're justifying it or you're sympathizing with it. It's just that you, you know, if, if we want to make policy, if we want to live in a society with other people, <laughs> you kind of have to uh, understand what you're up against and what, what uh, your neighbors are believing in. So, so I think, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's the bigger problem with the field of terrorism in a sense is because, because it's such a public field, um, you are impacted by this broader public conversation, the media conversation, the law enforcement conversation, to the extent that, you know, I never experienced um, before I started doing this, where, you know, if you're doing something like film studies or if you're doing something like, you know, studying literature or something, um, you can actually, li- you know, do a lot of your work in relative obscurity, whereas if you're studying the Islamic State, I mean, it's on the news every day, it's it's it's, it's part of a very public and policy-oriented conversation which impacts your research in many ways. And so. Yeah. Um, that that I think is is again again not a weakness of the field, but I think uh, something that the field needs to keep in mind because your kind of research agenda is driven by broader uh, forces than just what you're interested in. <laughs> um, sometimes, so yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's it reminds me of a quote from uh, from Robert White, uh, and I think I mentioned it in a previous podcast as well. Our our job is to understand; it's not to condemn or or to condone. It's to and without that understanding, then you you can't, as you say, uh, really tackle the the problems at the heart of it. The next piece that you uh, that you 
mentioned to me that that really influenced you is modernity and self-identity self and society in the late modern age by giddens published in 91 what was it that you gained from this piece um i mean giddens the, the giddens book and the burger book kind of go hand in hand in a way because for giddens um he he sees uh, and, and, and there's a lot of other kind of books associated with Giddens in terms of um, like Ulrich Beck's Risk Society or, um, or even older ones like um, Ernest Decker's Denial of Death uh, and things like that, which I think, are, I think terrorism scholars should read because it, in a weird way, um, it, it, it touches on this issue of, you know, we don't live in a postmodern society. We live in a late modern or, or, or a post-traditionalist society, as Giddens says, where um, the project of the self becomes primary, right? Uh, and, and so what he means by that is uh, we lived in a society at one time where uh, a lot of things were given to you, whether it's gender relations, uh, certain economic uh, underpinnings, uh, worldviews, religious identity, things were just kind of uh, as they are. So the, the, the idea that you had to create who you are, be something in the world, um, was a bit more constrained, right? So you had like three things you had to develop in order to uh, set yourself apart from society. Whereas now, the the idea of creating yourself is basically your entire self, right? The only thing that's given to you uh, is your kind of biological underpinning. Um, and so Berger argues this, Giddens argue argues this um, throughout the 90s, where the project of the self, the idea that you have to fu fundamentally create who you are and navigate this world is deeply galvanizing for some and deeply disorienting for others, right? And 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 this happens quite a bit in uh, quite a bit for youth, especially where uh, the idea that you go to school and you can be yourself and create who you are. Um, some people thrive in that kind of uh, open slate, uh, you know, create yourself kind of worldview. But I think um, for others, it's it's deeply uh, disorienting, and it's actually that much more. Uh, deeply affected by for immigrant and refugee youth, where um, for parents, a lot of these are givens, right? A lot of the things that their kids are supposed to believe and carry forward um, are not up for debate. They're not really up for reconstruction or, or editing, <laughs> whereas for the youth living in these societies, struggling with Western, uh, Western society, struggling with the traditionalism of their parents, um, a lot of these things are malleable. Right, a lot of their identity is 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 negotiable. It's it's something you can wrestle with and and uh, create create for yourself in the environment that you live in. Um, and again, some people uh, and I grew up with a lot a lot of these uh, people where they are deep. They can they can uh, this is this is like complete freedom for them, right? They can they thrive on this kind of freedom and self construction. Um, and they, you know, they, they listen to rap music and they listen to, they, they, they try out different hair colors and they try out different religions. They meditate on Wednesday and they go to church on Sunday and they do, you know, they kind of construct something for themselves that's uh, for themselves. Nobody else on the planet really practices their religious identity like they do because every, every day is a different thing. Um, but for others, that's a that's deeply disorienting and it's actually chaotic, right? And, and it creates the sense that, oh, I need, I need... Uh, there's, I need a more um, uh, identifiable quest for certainty because what you're giving me is a bit of chaos and I don't really uh, find comfort in that, right? And so we've, we've seen a kind of move towards conservatism uh, and this argument of, you know, uh, why people join strict churches or why people find a lot of uh, uh, meaning in, in, in kind of deeply conservative churches like Pentecostalism um, because I think there, there's a kind of broader 
social um, currents at play that are impacting the individual. And so that's kind of what uh, Giddens gets at, is that it's not enough to just talk about um, things on a very micro level. Mm -hmm. It's that there are these larger societal shifts happening over decades that impact the individual and impact who you are in in, uh, in the world, right? And and these kind of late modern or post-traditional shifts that he says, um, you know, impact how you go about your day. And mm -hmm. so that... that uh, uh, his book, in addition to Berger and a lot of the other social theorists that were writing at the time, I mean, um, this is the this is the stuff I read in grad school, so it's it's been uh, it's left it's left quite a mark, I think, in how I think about things and how I think about youth and identity and terrorism and 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 people uh, or youth getting involved in in these kind of violent movements. It's because it's not you know it's not strictly um, uh, you know what what they're going through that particular moment is that. They're wrestling with something much uh, broader that is affecting all of us in many ways. And so th this is the kind of particular response to a broader trends that are happening in society. And you can see this coming out in one of the pieces that I'm going to skip ahead here a bit because it, it links up well, I feel, to one of the pieces that you've put forward for your own research for us to focus on today. And that's a piece that you did with Lauren Dawson talking to foreign fighters. You see this. A quest for certainty or as Kruglansky would say a, a quest for personal significance as well um, and so were you seeing when you were and we'll get on to exactly your methodology here in a sec but did you find in that in researching that piece that the work of Giddens was really helping understand what uh, your interviewees were saying to you yeah, I mean, so me and Lauren have been uh, slowly developing a kind of different approach uh, to homegrown radicals, particularly called kind of the social ecology model. So I don't know if we mentioned it in that paper, but um, he's done a separate piece on it for ICCT and things like that, where it, it does take into account kind of layers of influence on an individual's identity, um, whether it's the kind of immigrant refugee experience, uh, whether it's the kind of conversion born again experience of some people um, going through this, whether it's, and, and within all of that is the kind of broader trends that Giddens and others talk about, which is the broader late modern um, shift, right? And um, and I think it all of that kind of has layers of impact on youth and how they go about their day um, in the contemporary world. And I think, you know, you're, you're seeing these broader shifts, you're seeing um, generational issues with their parents, you're seeing um, kind of very minute identity issues, whether it's their immigrant experience or, or the kind of refugee trauma and how they deal with that. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, their kind of religious and, and social response to some of these things, right? And I think um, part of the way we've been trying to understand homegrown radicalization in particular, because I don't think... Um, I don't think doing the kind of research we do in the West, uh, you can make really the same kind of arguments about why Syrian youth joined ISIS, for example, right? I think you, I think you have to limit what you're saying. But I think um, part of the way we understand homegrown radicaliz radicalization is kind of uh, an, an individual impacted by um, currents in, in, in kind of large-scale uh, social currents, but also... Uh, their neighborhoods, their families, their their countries, and so on. And so we've been trying to—I don't know how successful we've been, but we've been trying to get a get a sense of uh, how all of these different currents probably impact the individual um, on different levels, right? And um, so this is why, for example, kind of a white convert uh, in London uh, would have very different uh, reasons for joining a group like ISIS than a Somali refugee in in Toronto, for example, right? And and so I think. 
understanding these different layers of influence uh, is not easy, um, but I think if, if we want to get to um, why these youth kind of join these movements, it, it, you do need to get into the different layers a little bit. Not So I think a lot of people focus on different strands of that and they miss the bigger picture or they focus on the bigger picture and miss the individual uh, part of it. So part of our response has been to try to say, you know, this is a kind of layered issue. Um, and we're not the first to say it, obviously, but I think I think um, trying to understand the different uh, influences at play here is, is uh, should be the way forward. And so what way have you go gone about do uh, doing this? You've actually, as the title of that piece says, you've talked to foreign fighters. So who exactly is it that you've talked to? Um, is it, it it's not just uh, people who have joined ISIS as as people who have read this piece or or will read it in the future? No. So who is it and how do you uh, get to talk to them, first of all? Um, so, I, I mean, this is the interesting thing about the Syrian conflict is that, um, you know, a lot of these guys who left to join these various movements in Syria and Iraq um, were 20-year-old kids who were, who were active on social media. And once they landed in Syria and Iraq, they kept all those social media profiles active. And it created an interesting opportunity for researchers who um, previously had to, you know, uh, travel to the mountains of Afghanistan or something to find uh, people to talk to, where you could actually um, reach out to quite a few of them uh, and, and, and have conversations over Skype, uh, over text messaging, over kind of sending back audio clips to each other. Um, so it's, it's not the kind of traditional interview structure that I enjoy doing on, in the field. Um, and it has huge limitations, of course, because particularly with the text messages, I mean, you're not getting bodily responses or, you know, uh, facial facial expressions, how they're holding their hands and, and any, any of that, any of that stuff. So any of the human uh, human side of it, you're missing. But I think um, it, it, it did provide an opportunity to kind of talk to them and ask them why they went. And so, uh, you know, uh, there was a time in 2013, 2014, where literally dozens and dozens of these fighters were on Twitter uh, under various different identities and you could quite easily reach out and talk to them and ask them for an interview. Um, and uh, as you know, I mean, we went through a kind of long ethics process to kind of get approval for that and, and that has its own limitations. Um, but eventually, I mean, it was just a matter of finding people online, confirming that they were real uh, over time, and then uh, asking them questions that we would ask anybody else that you met in real life, um, um, and, and, and then, you know, factoring all the limitations of that process uh, as we went forward. How did you confirm they were real? Um, I mean, part of it, I mean, I get asked this quite a bit, I and mean, I think part of it is... Um, being around long enough online and in these networks uh, to get a sense of who's who and who's referring to who, right? And so sometimes other fighters would tell me about other fighters and sometimes uh, supporters would send me to fighters. Sometimes uh, their kind of Twitter persona made it quite obvious that they weren't really in Syria. They would repost photos as opposed to putting original content up there. They would um, not they would kind of spend a lot of time online uh, as opposed to others um, and, and, and so there are I, I think part of it is intuitive you kind of just um, around you're around long enough that you know the players a little bit um, I, I don't think a lot of the more technical stuff really worked I mean you know there, there was a time when people said you know you could trace their IP address and find out if they're in Toronto or something and um, I don't think that really works anymore I think it happens um, it, it, you kind of have to get at it 
through different um, interview strategies in a way and be around long enough that you kind of get get there. Um, I mean, there was a time, for example, when I asked uh, someone who I thought was in Syria very detailed questions about what was happening in the Islamic State in Raqqa, and he had no idea. Um, you know, and, and so there are moments like that when you uh, realize you're talking to supporters or you're talking to people who are just faking or journalists maybe or whoever, right? And um, so that that's another massive limitation, of course, of just talking to people online. But, I mean, there were people who I, I Skyped with them. I, um, uh, I, I, you know, exchange audio clips with them. I spend a lot of time talking to them online over several years. Um, who I'm pretty confident are still, uh, who are actual fighters. But there there were several cases when, you know, I in, deleted entire interviews <laughs> because I was convinced that this was a complete fake. And um, as a researcher, you know how difficult it is to delete an interview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, no, I think I think you, you kind of have to take the limitations at face value. And so um, that was one part of the interview process is to find fighters and supporters themselves and talk to them. But we also... Um, tried very hard to find parents and friends and, and other uh, people who were close to these guys um, to get a sense of, uh, I guess, I guess how those close to them saw the whole issue, um, what, what those close to them saw in terms of changes and uh, behavioral changes, attitudinal changes, social network changes, uh, and things like that. So part of the part of the project has been to kind of um, interview anyone close to fighters, but I'll also try to reach out to fighters themselves. And are there major significant differences between the the accounts that the people close to them are giving versus the accounts that the actual uh, fighter themselves are giving? What are the key differences there? Um, I think I think what the parents and friends saw, for example, um, is a kind of uh, I mean, they were impacted in different ways. And so uh, there's a mom, for example, in Calgary who's done quite a bit of media, media interviews around this issue where, you know, her son, Damien Claremont, uh, came home one day and said, uh, I need new plates, right? I'm not eating from any of your plates. This is all, these are all kofar plates or non-believer plates. I'm not, uh, I'm not eating from any of these plates. And so she was kind of blown away, right? She's like, this is her son who grew up in her house and now he won't eat from her plates because she thinks he thinks she's somehow impure and uh, and things like that. So it's, you know, a deep, deeply kind of hurtful exchange. Um, but it, it's that kind of insight, right, of, of a kind of everyday changes in behavior uh, that are, and this is why we kind of make the argument for the understanding the worldview is because these things just don't happen randomly. It's not that it's not that he just woke up one morning and decided that she was impure and that her plates were impure, um, or that he started to get new friends um, because that's just who he met that day. No, he he actively chose friends that fit his worldview, and dismissed other friends who he thought were now sellouts or apostates or heretics or whatever. Um, and so the choice of your social network, uh, the choice of your clothing, the choice of your, uh, what, you know, how you go about your day uh, is very much intertwined with an ideological sense uh, and, and the ideological changes that are also happening, right? And, and so I think those closest to them saw this very early, but they didn't really know what to do about it. Um, whereas when you ask the fighters themselves about these changes, um, they they speak in much more kind of ideological, pure, pure terms of, of why I... Uh, what it, what it is, I believe, rather than um, 
the changes because for them the changes are taken for granted it's not something they can clearly identify even though from those on the outside it, these are clear changes that they that they're noticing you're not going to the same mosque anymore you have a bunch of new friends you're you're dressing differently you're behaving differently you tell me my plates are impure <laughs> and so on so i think um, for them, these are kind of natural, for the fighters themselves, these are kind of natural outcomes of um, what they believe. Uh, and, and, and these are kind of taken for granted things that they have to do. Whereas for those on the outside, um, they're sometimes quite hurtful changes that they saw in their children or, or, or close friends, right? And um, so that, that's been uh, important for me to kind of wrestle with because I've always, I've always you know, wondered what can we gain from talking to parents? Um, you know, because are you really going to get a sense of why kids are radicalized by talking to parents? Because kids lie to parents, right? Mm -hmm. Newsflash. Um, um, but I think the broader question is, um, what kind of changes did you see? Uh, what kind of kind of you know pre-departure indicators? I think are, are important. What you know, what kind of uh, can we get at what you saw right? You know, six months to a week before your child left for Syria. Um, that kind of stuff, which I think w by talking to friends and family, you can get at some of that uh, interesting detail. Um, but yeah, I think I think that I think uh, part of this has been exploratory as well, right? Is that you know we went into it because there was interesting access there, um, and not necessarily because we had somehow well-defined research objectives. We said, oh, there's a bunch of fighters on Twitter. Let's go ask them stuff yeah. <laughs> and, and see, where it, see where it gets, right? And um, so, I mean, it, again, it's not, it's not how I like to do research. It's, um, but I think it, Syria and, and ISIS kind of provided an interesting and unique opportunity, which um, a lot of researchers have, have you know, exploited, I think. So that's, that's good. And yeah. from this as well, when you're when you're talking to the to these individuals who've gone over there, um, what did they talk about in relation to the reality of what it is to be over in Syria and Iraq versus what they expected? Um, I don't think there's a difference. I think um, for a lot of these fighters, I mean, I remember I was talking to a returnee uh, in Belgium. Um, and one thing he said that stuck with me was, you know, uh, say what you will about ISIS, but they never lied to us, okay. right? Which is which is actually quite different than how we generally talk about ISIS, which is these kind of evil, malicious people who are swindling recruits and who are lying to recruits and stuff like that. Where, for him, it was it was, um, if anything is true about ISIS, is that they're quite open about what they're doing, right? They're throwing homosexuals off buildings. They're burning cigarettes and alcohol, they're uh, killing spies, they're Im implementing what they consider to be Sharia law um, on a daily basis, and they're telling the world about it, and they're beheading uh, apostates and so on. So they're not really holding anything back from you to for you to then land in Syria and be like, oh, you behead people here? I had no idea. <laughs> um, and so they're, they're, they're quite open about what they're up to, right? And, and so, um, so then the question becomes... Uh, okay, then, if you're if you're kind of fully aware of all this gory violence and 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 all of that, why are you going? And you're going because you believe that this is a proper implementation of God's law, right? And and this is where I think Western academics kind of don't know where to go next, because um, if you believe, and and this is not you know in any way. Um, restricted to Islam, of course, and there are numerous cases of, of Christian right and others in, in the United States who believe that 
uh, the entire constitution should be rewritten according to the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, etc. Um, and so ISIS is, is, it falls into that similar worldview where they, they basically say, if you believe that God wrote a set of laws or gave you a set of laws, how much sense does it make to ignore those laws and live according to democratic liberal values? Right? You're talking God himself, the creator of the universe, gave you a bunch of laws and you're just going to ignore them. How rational is that? Um, and of course it's not rational. <laughs> if, you believe, if you believe that that's the case, obviously you should be um, trying very hard to implement those laws in society. You're an activist on behalf of God and what he wants. Um, and, and so in, in that context, if you believe slavery and beheadings and all these things are mandated, uh, required, um, it's, it's not going to be a deterrent, right? It, it's not, you're not going to watch these videos and be grossed out or um, turn away. You, you think these are the kind of pinnacle of what it means to be an Islamic state. Um, and so that's the trouble, and that, that's, that's the, I think, difficulty that a lot of Western academics have is, of, of really understanding um, how such a worldview can possibly galvanize youth that grew up in the West, you know, grew up uh, from elementary school being told about pluralism and multiculturalism um, and, and how they can abandon all of that for a very restrictive, very hateful, um, very dehumanizing uh, worldview. And I think that's the leap that, that we have a lot of trouble with. Um, and, and so part of the response to that as academics is to kind of really understand that worldview and the process by which some, somebody adopts that kind of thinking. And actually, also in the piece where you're, the piece that yourself and Lauren did, they, as I mentioned earlier, you're not just talking to people who went to join ISIS, you're looking to people who joined uh, other groups as well. And right. part of their teachings, uh, you're saying, is um, is actually anti-ISIS teachings. It's, it's they're sure. learning about this is what we do differently to ISIS and this is why we are against ISIS, actually. So... What what was it? What what could you give our listeners a sense of exactly what this meant and what um, these individuals were experiencing uh, in relation to that? In relation to what they're being taught out there? Yeah, I mean the uh, the guys that left early on in two thousand twelve thirteen uh, and the ones that are still with groups like uh, Jabhat al Nusra or uh, you know HTS as as uh, the kind of new iteration is called. Um, they believe that, you know, ISIS is wrong. Like, ISIS's interpretation of jihad is um, too extreme uh, and has basically missed the mark that there is the Islamic State that they're claiming is um, fundamentally uh, illegitimate um, and that they are the true representatives of, of the jihadist movement in Syria. Um, and I think that disagreement uh, is, is quite important because these guys believe, uh, the ones that love, you know, join groups like um, Ahr al-Sham or Jabhat al-Nusra, believe that the goal is something, is, is, is a just cause, right? In other words, it, it's, it's, we're responding to uh, the, a brutal dictatorship in Syria that has killed 500,000 people, that has produced 10 million refugees. Um, and, and my job as an able-bodied Muslim youth in the West isn't simply to tweet about it or to write letters to my member of parliament or something. It's to actually get up and do something. It's to actually go out there and do something. Um, and a lot of them basically say, this is you know, what we taught 
what we were taught from when we were kids in the West, right? And this is true. I mean, if you go into my daughter's elementary school right now, it's all about standing up for justice and standing up for what you believe in and fight for what you believe in. Pictures of Martin Luther King everywhere and Gandhi everywhere. Um, and for these guys, it's, it's, uh, it's the logical conclusion of that worldview, is that in the face of such injustice in Syria, what am I supposed to do? Right, as a Muslim, I'm going to be called to answer for this in the afterlife. That I'm going to be, uh, you know, it's it's the old, uh, what did you do in the war, you know, grandpa yeah. <laughs> poster, right? Um, it's the kind of jihadist version of that. Is is how are you going to answer when God Himself asks you, what did you do in the face of this kind of massacre? Um, and for for them, it's a it's it's a moral cause, it's a just cause, but it's also a kind of uh, existential question of, of of I'm going to be punished in the afterlife for sitting around just going to university and, and doing nothing. So this is why a lot of these kids abandon family, abandon universities, abandon uh, you know everything that they have, these $100,000 paying jobs that they were doing, um, uh, and, and, and to go and do this because they believe that it's an obligation, a requirement. Um, uh, and, and for them, it's a very defensive one, right? So this is where the kind of difference with ISIS starts in a way, because for ISIS, it's it's not really about this uh, Assad and Syrian revolution anymore. It's much more about uh, the implementation of Sharia law, the implementation of the state and expanding that state um, and helping that state thrive. Um, so th their logic and their, their kind of argument is quite different um, in, uh, compared to why others uh, in the West have joined. Um how would you react to um, if people, when people say, well, these interviews are all well and good, but what you're getting is actually these groups' propaganda? And you, you deal with it, the two of you deal with it in, in the piece, but I just want for our listeners to, uh, to hear your, your reaction to a statement like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think part of it is to ask them about more than what they believe, right? About um, ask, ask them about their backgrounds, ask them about how they came to adopt uh, these worldviews, and, and then you get a sense of the process at play, not simply, um, I mean, part of it is propaganda. I think part of it is uh, what, they, what they believe these, uh, you know, what they believe you want to hear or what, the, what these organizations believe. But part of it is what they believe, <laughs> and I think I think that's the difficulty. Is that um, I mean, this taps on it taps into a, a broader issue in the sociology of knowledge called the problem of accounts, right? Where all field research basically struggles with this question of how do you believe anything anyone tells you about anything? Um, that of course people uh, are going to um, talk about their past and talk about their present in a way that makes them look good, makes them look noble, makes them look like they chose the right path. Um, and that applies to uh, any person anywhere. Um, and so it, I think, I think uh, the weakness is in, is in uh, the process of research itself in a way, and not necessarily talking to terrorists, right? I think, um, I think that the same problem exists everywhere. And I think, um, I mean, I, I encountered this quite a bit in my dissertation as well, where you talk about um, why somebody became an activist, uh, you know, how they got involved in the Tamil diaspora politics and activism. And they'll tell you that they were lost before, that when they were in university, they were just reading nonsense and they didn't really understand what, what people were going through. And it was only when this protest started and only when this, they were met this person that they learned you know, the true plight of our people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and things like that. And so I think people always, uh, in a way, in a way uh, present their past as 
misguided <laughs> and as, as an eventual journey to an enlightened period which is the present <laughs> um, and and uh, that implies that it applies to formers and returnees as well actually where you talk to disillusioned ISIS fighters and they'll kind of tell you the same thing I was lost once but now I, now everything is clear mm. um, and so it, it's hard to kind of get beyond that other than to simply um, take it into account but also you know trust the narrative in a way trust trust people's views of themselves and why they made these decisions while also recognizing that there are kind of psychological patterns at play that may you know that, that may affect their testimony but I, I don't think I don't think as researchers you can um, you can fix that problem in any easy sense yeah and I, I you say right at the beginning of the piece that there are conscious and unconscious distortions in in what people put forward it's not always very purposeful it can be something that they've actually convinced themselves of as well but you refer to that um to your dissertation uh, you refer to your doctoral research um and that actually you went on to publish this as a book uh, the book pain pride and politics social movement activism in the Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora in Canada um what were you what it, it the title gives gives a lot away there but how did you approach this this issue and why did you feel that um, looking at um, the Tamil situation from a diaspora point of view was a was a worthwhile one. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the policy discussion around the Tamil community, uh, I guess, in both Europe and uh, Canada, is is around this question um, of what does the diaspora contributing to the conflict. Um, and so a lot of the Tamil, you know, the LTT front groups in places like Canada and the U.S. and Europe uh, were all listed terrorist organizations, right? We're all banned, uh, banned in the country from fundraising uh, and, and, and providing any kind of material support. And, and so I wanted to kind of trace the history of that mobilization in the diaspora because there's, there's one million Tamils who have left the country. It's, and, and Canada is the largest population of Tamils outside of the Sri Lanka itself. Um, and, it, and it's a very active diaspora, a very mobilized diaspora, and um, has been accused of funding terrorism. Lots of people have been arrested um, for funding terrorism. And, and then it fits into this broader academic question of what does the diaspora do to prolong conflict, right? And, and Or does it uh, prolong conflict? Um, and so I wanted to kind of tap into some of that question in the post-war context, right? And, and so the, the war in Sri Lanka, 20... Uh, Twenty-some-odd-year war in uh, in Sri Lanka came to an end in 2009 uh, in a bloody kind of humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, the Tamil community around the world mobilized, uh, took to the streets in the tens of thousands in London, Paris, um, in, in in Toronto, Ottawa, and so on. Um, some of the, some of your listeners may remember uh, being stuck in traffic during those periods. <laughs> um, and I think. Um, I wanted to get a sense of what is all this momentum going to, where is all this momentum going to go, right? Where, is, where are decades of mobilizing, decades of social movement organizing, uh, the creation of different uh, groups and organizations in the diaspora, what's going to happen to all of that post-war? What's going to happen to all of that with the death of the LTT leader uh, and the kind of basic destruction of the LTT itself? Because um, the diaspora was very much committed to kind of doing very little except lobbying and fundraising for the group back home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once the group back home is destroyed, what is going to happen to the diaspora, right? What's going to happen to all this activism? Um, and so that's the kind of question I was getting at. I, you know, we, we I did about 130 interviews with uh, youth activists, um, 
with organizational leaders, with um, you know uh, different generations of people, uh, older older community members who had created these groups uh, and, and and all of that to try to answer that question. Um, and I think this is where I, I mean the the other book that I recommended, uh, Ziad Munson's book, came very handy and w was quite influential uh, even now. It's because um, what became clear over time was, you know, uh, basically everything I've been saying up to uh, up to now in this podcast uh, is all the opposite can also be true, <laughs> which is that yes, ideas are important. Yes, people get massively mobilized by ideas and and choose movements that uh, are very much in line with those ideas. But there's also evidence to the contrary, which is that you join movements for entirely non-movement related reasons, right? So Munson makes this uh, very clear in his book on pro-life activists, where he says uh, quite a few of quite a few of the people who joined pro-life activism or pro-life protests actually got went there because they were just walking down the street from school one day and they saw a protest and went up and asked a question. Uh, one of their friends kind of dragged them to that uh, protest, and it was only then that they went home and Googled, like, what is pro-life um, and things like that. So you, you, you can actually accidentally end up in a social movement and accidentally end up galvanized by uh, a belief system that you didn't really care about just five hours ago, right? Um, you, you may not have cared about this issue of pro-life and uh, uh, pro-choice just yesterday, but today you're somehow deeply committed to it and you're going to, you know, go out there and going to uh, skip all your classes and spend all day out on this, uh, out on the street protesting this issue. Um, and of course, it's a kind of reiterative, uh, a, a kind of circular process where you joined for non-movement related reasons, but now the ideology of the movement is very much part of who you are and uh, you're going to go out and, 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 and do all kinds of stuff, right? And, and so I noticed that quite a bit as well with the Tamil community case where a lot of youth went to this protest. They, um, you know, got were face to face with police lines. Were uh, were yelled at by everyday Canadians who, you know, told to go back to where you came from and all of this stuff. And it was only then that they went home and said, "What is the LTTE? Who is, you know, uh, Prabhakar? And what is? Who are the Tamil Tigers? What is the case of discrimination uh, in Sri Lanka going back decades?" Um, and it was only then, from the kind of intensity of the protest and the emotional importance of the being involved with the protest itself, that they then kind of got involved in the broader movement, right? Okay. Um, and 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 so both Munson uh, Munson's book and and I think my research on the Tamil case make that make that uh, case, which is that um, uh, you can actually accidentally end up in deeply involved in a movement um, almost by sheer uh, happenstance, I guess, and. Um, and and Lauren Dawson, actually, who I wrote the foreign fighter article with, um, sees some of this as well in, in in why people join cults and new religious movements as well. You know, you're, you're kind of going through a deep crisis. There there are good cases, for example, in um, Eileen Barker's book on the Moonies, uh, which is which is a kind of classic book about why people join new religious movements. Well, you know, you go through all kinds of crisis. You you know, you fail out of school. Your parents are divorced. You break up with your girlfriend. You're just sitting on uh, the side of a road one day. And along comes uh, somebody from the Moonies and, and basically makes sense of their entire world for you, right? Um, and I think after they leave, some of these people are interviewed and they said it could have basically been anybody who walked down that street that day. It could have been somebody volunteering to build a home in Guatemala and I would have been gone to Guatemala. It could have been uh, the Hare Krishnas and I would have joined the Hare Krishnas. Mm -hmm. It could have been ISIS and I would have joined ISIS, right? Um, and so I think th there there is a... 
there is a there's some truth to that in that the the part of radicalization of course is the ideological component but i think there's a kind of opportunism or happenstance uh, element to this where um you can you can quite easily uh find yourself in a place where uh you're living in this kind of chaotic environment and uh, uh, family chaos social chaos um and these movements if nothing else uh, are quite certain about what they believe uh, passionate about what they believe um, and and can actually galvanize you in many interesting ways. And so um, getting at that, I think, requires a bit of field work and getting out there and talking to people for long periods of time, which, um, I don't know, <laughs> not many people do, I guess, um, uh, because it requires funding and assistance and all that stuff. But I think, um, yeah, I think that, that that's that's the challenge is... is getting at that motivation and and we we do need to take into account ideology but i think um a lot of the opposite is also quite possible and what have you what did you find then in relation to what happened this these uh diaspora social movements uh in the past few years after uh what has happened uh with the ltt with the the death of leadership and so on um I mean, what what basically happened in Canada, at least, and I think it's probably true for uh, Europe as well, is that um, because uh, because the LTT was a kind of charismatic organization run by a charismatic leader in the in the very strict sense, um, who didn't really give a whole lot of thought to the issue of succession uh, and how the defeat of the organization would carry forward, you've noticed uh, a kind of inevitable factionalism creep up, right? So everyone. Uh, a whole host of leaders who think that they are the true representatives uh, of, of, of what the LTT really stood for and really fought for um, have been carrying on. Uh, they each have their own different organizations and they each have their own uh, crew of supporters. Um, and that factionalism is a very genera- older generational phenomenon. So it's, it's, a, it's people in their 40s, 50s, 60s in the Tamil community. And that factionalism inevitably has also uh, disillusioned a whole host of twenty-year-olds and people in 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 the universities because they don't they don't really relate to these older community members. They don't really see the same issues at play. The older community um, doesn't know the international human rights game, so to speak. They don't know how to speak the language of the UN. They don't know what genocide means. They don't know what. Uh, the Rome statute is, you know, all that stuff. And so th- there's a kind of weird disconnect between the older generation who thinks they're the true representatives of, of, of the LTT and the vast swaths of the youth who are completely disillusioned by that conversation, who think actually you need to take it to the parliament and you need to take it to the UN and take it to the criminal courts and all that stuff um, to basically hold the Sri Lankan government accountable for what happened and, and, and all of that. So I think that, that there's a there's a disjuncture in that conversation, which has basically resulted, I mean, now it's been eight years since the end of the war, basically resulted uh, in basically quiet activism. <laughs> like, nothing's really happening. There hasn't really been a protest on the street in a long time. There hasn't really been mass mobilization in a long time. Um, there's there's a little bit of uh, more administrative activism, I guess you can call it, uh, where people are, uh, you know, at the UN, they're 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 making motions, they're trying to influence the re- how the resolutions are passed uh, at the Security Council and, and things like that. So it, it's dying down, I would say, um, but there's also a bit of different kinds of activism happening. There's also a focus internally on our own problems as well in the community, where uh, things like gay rights are popping up and 
gender rights are popping up, which di wasn't really talked about before, right? I, I think uh, part of what the Sri Lankan, uh, part of what the LTT did was monopolize the conversation around a very specific set of political issues, um, which once the LTT was defeated, all these other issues started popping back up. Oh yeah, gender issues. Oh yeah, that we have um, we have gay, you know, anti-gay discrimination in the community. We have caste discrimination in the community. We have all these other cultural issues uh, that we haven't dealt with for 20 years because we're all focused on <laughs> all focused on a country far, far away, right? And I think um, that so you're seeing a bit of internal focus now as well and activism around there, which is good. Um, and so, yeah, interesting things have happened actually since the end of the war, I think. Um, and p partly uh, confirming a lot of the research literature on the question of succession and not thinking through succession and what that means and, and what how that can actually lead to factionalism and uh, and the death of a movement, basically. So, and it's it's interesting to talk about this because as it ha as happens the whole time, when a conflict has come to an end, academics as well go, okay, let's look for something else to look at as well. Right. We, we need to concentrate on as well as looking at the modern day conflicts, what ha has happened in post-conflict situations, both on the ground and elsewhere within the diaspora community as well. But I'm going to mm -hmm. be a hypocrite here and I'm going to go back to that modern day conflict <laughs> because we're going to focus on that, that last piece that, that you've put forward. And this is a piece that you wrote alongside Colin Clark uh, for The Atlantic. It's, it's a piece that's really looking at, well, what is happening to ISIS at the moment? And the opening sentence of the piece, the Islamic State is reeling, really sets the tone of this piece uh, completely. What, what were you, what was the key message that you and Colin were trying to put forward with this? Um, I, I mean, I think I've been, I've been a bit, um, I don't know, again, unsatisfied with the conversation around the returnee issue and the post-ISIS issue, right? I think um, again, we have a tendency uh, to to look at the issue as as a uh, as a national security thing and not anything else. And and so what 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 that's resu resulted in is seeing all returnees as a potential threat, and that's the only lens through which we can look at them. And how do we put into place uh, a whole host of policy responses to deal with that? Um, and I think as academics, as sociologists, we can um, we can kind of look broader than that, hopefully, um, and I think that that's what we're trying to get at, is to say, what are the different kinds of returnees that are going to pop up? What what are the different options available uh, in terms of what ISIS, where ISIS is going to go following the, you know, loss of certain key cities um, uh, in the past? And and so it's not, it's not simply that, oh, they're going to lose Mosul and Raqqa and ISIS is going to be dead and all these Western guys are going to come back to the West and kill us all, right? <laughs> um, and, and so what, what, what is the, what's lost in that debate? Um, and, and we wanted to get at a sense of, oh, okay, there's, there's the disillusioned crowd who are, of course, um, you know, and John Horgan's uh, said a lot about this as well, where you, the, the people who leave these organizations um, are going to be disillusioned with the particular group. They're going to be disillusioned with the broader ideology, uh, and they may come back and go about their day, much like all returnees have from all conflicts in the past, right? Um, and then there's these interesting middle ground people that uh, some of whom I've been interviewing, where I would say they're kind of disillusioned, or sorry, just disengaged but not disillusioned. Mm -hmm. um, and and so these are the middle ground of people who uh, are very much out of the conflict for a variety of, again, non-movement related reasons. So they could have gotten injured, 
Uh, one of them left to get married and have a family. He, you know, he's basically thought his tour of duty uh, in ISIS was over and um, he can now do other things. Uh, and, and so they left actually for non-ideological reasons, which was just to continue a family or have a life. Um, and, but they're still very much pro-social movement, pro-jihad, right? And, and so if there was another kind of mobilization a couple of years from now, if there was another conflict a couple of years from now, they'd be gone again. Um, and and so that that that's an interesting middle range which uh, creates a whole host of issues for policy in terms of how you actually respond because these guys are now going to be charismatic leaders in their neighborhoods, going to influence other people, um, have networks in place all over the Middle East which which can facilitate a whole host of things for the, for a newer movement. Um, and so that that was another issue. Uh, and then of course the third category which we're all very much aware of is the kind of operational ones who are sent back. To basically launch attacks, um, and 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 so what I mean, what we tried to do with that piece is to get a little bit of the disaggregate, I guess, this issue of the post-ISIS world and the returnee uh, phenomenon into different categories that we can hopefully approach differently in terms of policy. But I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think I don't think the conversation in the West, uh, in Western governments, especially. Um, or even in mainstream society is, is is ready for that kind of conversation of, of maybe we don't prosecute everybody. You know, maybe we t deal with it differently. There's been some chatter about it in different countries, but I don't think the general response is always lock them up and throw away the key. Um, I don't care if they're disillusioned or whether they're uh, just injured or whether they're sent here to kill me. I want them all gone, right? And, and so um, even though I think the, the response should be a bit more nuanced. I don't think it will be in terms of policy. Um, uh, and then there's a whole host of other issues about uh, the, the children that have been uh, born and raised in, 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 uh, under ISIS rule and what to do with all of them. Um, and there I've seen a bit of nuance in terms of policy responses to kind of um, deal with them differently, particularly the very young ones who were born in Syria, uh, Western parents, basically. Um, and and how to deal with them and 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 the and the psych, kind of psychologists and child psychologists that you can mobilize and train to deal with the issue and so there there have been uh, some issues there uh, that we can deal with but I think generally when it comes to fighters people people don't want to hear it. <laughs> so. it it's it sort of reminds me of one of our earlier episodes I think it was in episode three when I was talking to Sarah Marsden she was saying that when talking about reintegration of uh, former terrorists, that it's it's not just about the individual who's reintegrating to be ready, it's the society they're reintegrating into need to be ready as well. Um, and this yeah. is something something important that comes from this piece as well. Do, do you feel that there's any country that's that's standing above the rest in relation to, to dealing with this heterogeneity of returnees? Um, I don't know if any Western country is doing it Interestingly, but I think uh, so. I, I, I spent some time in uh, Mogadishu last year talking to defectors and um, prisoners in Mogadishu, and I think they have a very interesting approach, which is basically if you're a Somali citizen and you want to defect, you're given complete immunity. Um, so there's there's uh, with a catch, right? So you, you know if you want to leave Al Shabaab, you can leave Al Shabaab if you're a Somali citizen. Um, and we'll put you, we'll come get you, we'll put you in a series of safe houses, and we'll, after a couple of months or a couple of years, you can go about your day, you know, get married, live your life in Somalia, no prosecution whatsoever. Okay. However, <laughs> however, um, and this has gained some criticism uh, as of late, is, is that we're going to put you on the media, 
locally. We're going to take you around the neighborhoods that you used to uh, used to hang out in, and you're going to point us to other Shabab fighters. True. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna point out people uh, that are members of Shabab. Because part of the problem in Mogadishu is that um, there are sleeper cells everywhere. There are Shabab fighters walking down the street. It's just that you don't know who they are. Um, and there's no way to tell who you are. And there's the, the, the law enforcement doesn't have enough resources to check every car for car bombs and you know, tap everybody, ch uh, ch uh, check every 20-year-old uh, who might be a member of Al-Shabaab. And so they need these kind of networks of formers, basically, to point out, oh, that guy over there, I used to hang out with him. Um, you know, and, and, and so the criticism has been that the law enforcement officials who go into these neighborhoods have their faces covered, but the people that they take around, the, for the formers that left... They're they're not covered, right? And so, um, so the, the 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 kind of Somali strategy has been: yes, we'll promise you complete immunity and um, freedom from prosecution, but we're going to make damn sure that you're never going back there, <laughs> at risk of your own at risk for your own life, right? So you're never going back to these neighborhoods and pretending like you were just joking, because they're going to kill you. You're, you're never going to, um, and 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 so we're, we're going to kind of create a level of stigma and threat around to your own life as a way, as a kind of reward for the uh, in exchange for all the the freedoms that you that you're going to get so again i don't think that's going to fly in the west but no. but it's a it's a it's an interesting approach to the issue which is um, worked wonders actually in, in, in a weird way because it's basically starting to gut the organization from the inside and, and the leadership of the organization and, and uh, are becoming very uh, worried about defections, right? Because they know what they know that people can defect and gain, gain no punishment and therefore more like more people are likely to defect. So um, it's created a, a sense of suspicion in, inside the organization. People suspect each other of wanting to leave. Uh, the, they've experienced real defections, and and so uh, it's an interesting strategy to kind of, um, you know, for a state to kind of dismantle an organization from the inside. And how long has this strategy been in place? Um, I think maybe a year or two. Okay, and and about how many defectors have they had? Uh, oh, they have a lot. I think. Um, the 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 the, uh, the rehabilitation centers and prisons that I visited, um, I think there were like three or four thousand, yeah. uh, a couple thousand. Yeah. yeah. Um, the tricky part has been the Westerners who aren't Somali citizens, and therefore then the Americans and the Canadians and the Brits have a kind of case for extradition. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't have Somali citizenship, you don't get to just hang out. But so. So if you're if you're a Canadian citizen and you don't have Somali citizenship, um, you're very likely going to be extradited if you're caught, uh, or if you want to defect. But if you have local citizenship, then you're then you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, it's so. it's something that's that's worth watching. It raises a a lot of significant questions about about the the human rights elements surrounding this as well, and uh, it's um it's a it's a different approach than we would have in in Canada or the UK anyway all right and something yep. so, something that that's uh, that's to be watched all right uh, i realized we've gone uh, we're we're well over an hour now for the for today's podcast so I'd, amar i'd like to thank you for this but i'd like to finish just with the j same question i finished with everyone and you mm. you sort of dealt with that at the beginning um how do you feel the state of terrorism research is at the moment, and where do you see it going forward? Um, no, I think I think it's um, I think it's pretty healthy for the most part. I think uh, 
I think there's been a lot of interesting research, uh, a lot of focus on the qualitative uh, as opposed to strictly data sets and things like that, and a lot of people who going out and doing field research uh, in, in, in different kind of hotspots and uh, post-war conflicts, um, which I see as part of terrorism studies, but I don't know if terrorism studies sees as a part of terrorism studies. Um, and, and so the entire field of, you know, a lot of these civil war uh, uh, research projects, I think, is relevant for terrorism studies, but I don't know if it's seen that way. Um, what I do think is a bit, uh, becoming a bit poisonous, and I use that word uh, deliberately, is, is, is kind of... Um, the, the kind of social media influence in all of this. I think uh, things like Twitter um, are, have huge benefits, I think, for academics, and, and they should be on there. But I think it's also led to, um, you know, egos and debates and, and, and kind of factionalism and uh, groupthink and, and things like that amongst academics. And, and I think that... I don't know if it if it's harmful at the moment, but I think going forward, if we're not careful, it could actually uh, impact research in interesting ways. Of um, you know, d d different different groups are forming online, and and they don't talk to each other, and they don't like each other, and but we're all submitting to the same journals, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and I think I think that that's, uh, that that could be trouble troubling going forward. But I think for the most part. The old debate about uh, between Sageman and others on on the health of terrorism research, I think, is is um, uh, I'm 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 pretty I'm pretty happy with it at the moment because I think there's a lot of new master students and graduate students putting out very interesting work and they're they're going out into the field and and um, talking to people and and thinking about it in different ways as well not just talking to not just talking to terrorists so to speak but talking to t talking to people around them talking to the neighbor you know communities that they came out of and uh, understanding the influences and the networks at play so I think um, getting getting creative about how to approach uh, this issue because it, it is a difficult issue in that, I mean, these are clandestine organized, and as you know well, I mean, you know, with your work on Northern Ireland, these are clandestine groups who sometimes don't want to talk and um, getting at it uh, from creative ways is, is, is important. So I think we're, I think we're good. <laughs> I yeah. think we're getting there. I, I, I wasn't expecting that you of all people would be criticizing social media, but sure, they, <laughs> you saved the surprise to the end anyway. But, uh, Amar, thank you so much for, uh, for doing today's interview. And uh, for any of our listeners who want to read any of the research uh, that was discussed here, both Amar's own research as well as the research that influenced him, be sure to go on our website, ueil.ac.uk slash TERC. Follow us on Twitter, uh, and don't worry, we don't get involved in those uh, those <laughs> academic fights now. But for, you can follow us on Twitter at t e r c u e l and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. So thank you very much, and talk to you soon.